Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 29th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a mini water cooler episode and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior news editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you on today's episode because Halloween is very, very soon. I have four uh, horror movies that I want to talk to you about. Uh, But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about what we've been doing. And you have finally uh, been been doing something that you really, really enjoy, but you haven't had a chance to do recently, right? Yeah, uh, for the first time in two years, I went to a haunted house. Hooray! (laughs) Because, you know, uh, haunted house industry, like, like the movie theater industry was smashed by COVID because... Haunted houses typically involve, you know, narrow corridors with people screaming in your face. So it's just a um, uh, an industry that people wondered would survive the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. I know that even though I didn't do any last year, I know that there was um, one of my local houses that I go to, uh, Scream Hollow. They actually had a thing last year where they you would buy glow, different colored, you would be assigned different glowing um, uh, necklaces or wristbands, I think, uh, that the actors, when they saw the color, would know, okay, green means that 
they, they uh, you keep six feet from them no matter what. Don't like even approach for a scare. Whereas the red means you don't give a shit. <laughs> and, Interesting. Was it yeah. like? Did it have to do with like vaccination or just like personal preference or uh, personal preference? Okay. Interesting. Um, but I, I didn't go that year. But I thought it was a very interesting way to handle it, a way to you know try to keep the thing keep the business rolling without courting the controversy of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but this year um, I went back to Scream Hollow, which is my favorite uh, haunt in the Austin area. Two years ago we did a massive road trip that I talked about on. Uh, the podcast you know, years ago uh, where we went to the Dallas Fort Worth area did a whole bunch of haunted houses up there but this year mm-hmm. we just stuck to Austin and Scream Hollow is a really really cool place it's literally five minutes down the road from where the Texas Chainsaw Master gas station is which has been lovely restored and turned into a tourist attraction now <laughs> but it's, it's literally out in the middle of Texas Chainsaw Master country it's in the middle of the woods on this private land so it is just far from parking lots you literally park in a field it's far from highways uh, you step out of your car, you feel like you're in a wilderness. And it's a series of, you know, different houses. I think there's uh, four houses. Uh, and it's, a, it's a big complex. There is a, uh, you know, there's a bar. There's a uh, fast food-esque restaurant. There's a giant fire pit. It's just a place to, um, uh, it meant to be, it's meant to be like a big Halloween celebration. This year, they even added a uh, non-profit history of Halloween museum, which was surprisingly big and full of really cool stuff that Interesting. was literally on the site. It was like a little... Hey, I mean, a little. It's a modestly sized uh, museum that walks through the history of the of the holiday, and uh, the, the main four houses were the same as they'd been in the past. You know, we all wore masks. Uh, there were fewer actors than there were in the past. A lot more scares were animatronic driven or special effects driven as opposed to actors, which I feel like a very clear choice. Uh, and this year's new attraction, though, they added a haunted hayride, which is very common in the Midwest and the East Coast, but not really common in Texas. And that's literally what it is. A tractor pulls you on a big wagon where everybody sits on hay bales, which is, you know, a, a carryover from, you know, the Midwest where, where these where these first originated. And you go through a series of scenes uh, where actors jump out at you. We, there's a live host who is narrating it all in this case. So we're going literally back in time to be told a story of the Wendigo invasion of Bastrop, Texas in the 1800s. So it was a um, really impressive thing. And as somebody who's watched a lot of YouTube videos of haunted hay riders over the years and said, man, why doesn't Texas have these? It was a really cool addition uh to a halloween uh site that i enjoy very much um uh, unfortunately i won't be able to get to austin's other haunted house house of torment uh uh they are actually being very responsible they have very strict time windows mask requirements for all actors and people very strict social distancing more so but it's all completely indoors i think people feel a little bit more uh hesitant about that in my, mm-hmm. my, so in, in my group so we maybe skipping that one this year, but it's very interesting to see that, uh, that the, the, watch the haunted house industry rebound. And it was, it was very fun to be out there with my vaccinated friends yeah. and go and, uh, do a very, very social activity. You know, there's, there's, what is more social than, you know, literally driving out in the middle of nowhere in, in a car together, standing in lines and, and screaming as things leap out at you in dark hallways. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to hear that you were able to do this, Jacob. I know how much this means to you and how excited you get uh, when you have the opportunity to do this. So that's that's really cool. Um, let's go into what we've been reading. I haven't really been reading much. I'm in the middle of a couple books that I'll probably talk about when I finally get around to finishing them. But uh, what have you been reading recently, Jacob? Uh, I'm reading Disney's Land. That's not Disneyland. It's Disney's as in possessive land okay. uh, by Richard Snow. Uh, it is a book about the construction of Disneyland, you know, the claimed and famous, iconic even, uh, California theme park that Walt Disney personally oversaw a, a, in the 1950s. And they're making a movie about the construction of Disneyland. And I've heard many stories over the years about the construction of the park and how wild it was and time crunched it was and how 
essentially there was Walt Disney with this massive pipe dream and having to put together like his Ocean's Eleven-esque team of scoundrels to make it happen. And Disney's land is really leans heavily into the idea of this group effort of this of this group of people who uh, of you know animators, businessmen, uh, scientists, engineers, uh, agriculturalists, um, all the people who had who had one year and uh, to build Disneyland, and it ends up being you know uh, whether you like Disneyland or not, you know as a theme park person. Uh, it is a feat of engineering, a, a feat of architecture, a feat of urban planning, and it is this book is genuinely fascinating. I do think that Richard Snow as a writer is maybe a bit too enamored with Walt Disney himself as a figure, who is, uh, you know, a very, very if, you, if you've read a good Walt Disney biography, uh, I recommend Neil Gabler's Walt Disney biography, a very complex man. I think Richard Snow is really, really enamored with him as a creative force uh, and kind of occasionally sidesteps some of the darker stuff about him, but mm. in terms of an overall portrait of everybody who built Disneyland beyond Walt Disney. It's really excellent. And I'm really hoping that this uh, upcoming movie they're making about the construction of it leans very heavily into C.V. Wood, who was uh, a (laughs) juvenile delinquent and college dropout who faked his way into a series of government jobs uh, and like worked for the military and worked for the state of California. And he was this Texas guy who was known to like to be super charming and would take clients out to whorehouses uh, south of the border of Mexico. And he's the guy who Disneyland Disneyland built. He was hired by Roy Disney, Walt's brother, to make sure Disney got out on time. So the guy who Disneyland built is this outrageous Texas con man scoundrel, like womanizer. And he is fascinating. He's an incredible character. And I really hope he's the lead character of this movie Man. that they're making. So I never saw War Dogs, the Miles Teller, uh, Jonah Hill movie from a few years ago. But that kind of character sounds like... Uh, it, it sounds like a war dogs kind of scenario transplanted into a theme park world. So, uh, <laughs> man, that would that sounds really entertaining. So, yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I hope, yeah. that, I hope that person is like front and center in that movie. And I will say that uh, Richard Snow is he's a historian, and it's interesting because you look at his list of books he's written; they're all about uh, post Civil War United States for the most part. And in his, in, in his early chapter, he writes as a kid he visited Disneyland in the 50s, and when I was still you know a few years old, and the Main Street USA section of the park, which is a 1900s-era uh, you know, Main Street uh, inspired by Walt Disney's per- perfection, perfection, perfect version of mm-hmm. where he grew up. Uh, he said, as a kid, that struck him so much that he decided, oh, for the rest of my life, I'm going to study this era of the United States. So it's kind of this weird ripple effect. of a guy writing this book about Disneyland um, because it actually inspired him to enter a whole other career as a historian about other parts of America. Huh. So that was, it, it gives him an interesting perspective on, uh, on you know, the, the entire thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's another book you've been reading too, right? Uh, yeah, this one's a, a far less of an actual book. I've actually read it straight through. I, I just keep it, I keep it in my bathroom, Ben, and I just pick it up every so often <laughs> when I'm when I'm in there. It's called Dangerous Games of Play in the Dark by uh, Lucia Peters. And what it is, it's like it's a little handbook. It's meant to be like put in your pocket and carry it to parties. And it's just a collection of uh, of games to play in the dark, as it says. And this means that it's a collection of folk games that are from you know decades, not centuries ago, but also a collection of like a uh, games that are developed in recent years and spread like on the internet, you know, as viral challenges. And it's essentially occult games, games that summon a supernatural, supernatural to commune with ghosts, to summon demons, uh, you know, everything from Bloody Mary to the elevator game. And 
what I like about it is that it gives very explicit instructions on how to play these games, offers a little bit of backstory on them, but takes it completely seriously. At no point does the book say, oh, or this is all in good fun. This is all something that you can do because it says ghosts aren't real. It, it, it treats it as if this is all very real and has warnings. Like, if you do this incorrectly, you may be haunted for the rest of your life. Here's how you can avoid that. And <laughs> each one ends up reading like a little miniature horror story because even though there's no, like, actual characters or... Uh, no, like point where it's like boo, gotcha, scares. The whole thing reads like a book full of cursed, I- cursed ideas. So you read one, <laughs> you, you kind of picture the movie in your head as you read like this five-page description of how to play this game. So if you're looking for like a good, like really spooky Halloween, you know, microbite, you know, read, Dangerous Games of Play in the Dark is something I would really recommend. It's just a really fun thing to have if you're a fan of that kind of thing. That is very cool. Uh, okay, so let's get into what we've been watching. And Jacob, I have watched four horror movies recently. Uh, I'll, I'll start off with the first three, which is the Fear Street trilogy that is on Netflix right now. This came out earlier this year. Um, I think I was talking to you on a previous episode of this podcast about it. I know I was talking to Chris about it at one point. Um, I remember Chris liking it quite a bit. What what were you, what was your read on the Fear Street trilogy? Did you enjoy it? I love the Fear Street movies. I think they're us. I think they're super cool. I think they're they're just literally what I wanted out of the most nineties possible horror movie somehow made this year. Yeah. So, uh, Lee Janiak, I think is how you pronounce her last name. She directed all three of these movies and this is, um, I mean, what an achievement to, to come out with three movies in the same year that are all part of the same, uh, I guess, mini franchise, if you want to call it that, and the connections and everything that are in that. First of all, I, I love this trilogy as well. I like. I, I watched the, the trailer for all three. They released this, Netflix earlier this year released this sort of mega trailer for all three of them before they originally came out. And I was very put off by this trailer. I thought it was just like, it looked really cheap and just uh, cheesy in the wrong ways. And I avoided watching these movies. And Chris, and I think maybe you, talked me into watching them around Halloween. So I just put it off and put it off. And finally it was like, all right, let's, let's dive into this. Let's see. I'll, you know, I'll watch 10 minutes of the first one and probably just turn it off because it's not going to be my thing. And I was immediately sucked in and just like, you know, burned through all three of these movies and loved every second of them. I, I have no idea. I, I can't think of another instance where uh, a trailer I've been, I've been so like down on the trailer and ultimately high on, on the movie itself. Um, so I don't know if anybody else out there saw that trailer and, and was put off by it. I would highly encourage you to check out all three of these movies because they're just spectacularly well done. Um, uh, Kiana Madeira is like the, the main character in these things and I, in all three movies. And I had not seen her work in anything else. And I was very captivated by her. I thought she did a, a tremendous job just anchoring this franchise and i loved the the breakdown of this whole thing so the first part takes place in 1994 the second part takes place in 1978 and the third part takes place in 1666 and there are different casts for some of these stories mostly the the first and second one uh have mostly different casts but the third film um features several of the characters that you've seen uh, in the first two movies, playing other characters way, way, way back in time. And it ties everything back in so wonderfully. The, the storylines, the the um, the performances, the uh, the surprising amount of gore, Jacob, all of this sort of like came together in, in such a wonderful way here. They, they really go for it in this, <laughs> in these movies. Like these are hard R rated uh, movies where like most horror movies don't, don't really 
Don't kill that part. Hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, all I'll say is bread slicer. That's all. I'll yeah. Say. Oh my God. That is like the one. And I was like, there's no way they're going to kill that character. And not only do they kill that character, they kill that character in like the most gruesome way in the most gruesome kill across the entire uh, trilogy of movies. So um, yeah, it, it is one of those, man, on one hand, it's like the perfect Halloween kind of vibes movie for people who don't really, for people like me who like don't love horror movies, but still want to watch them and, and sort of uh, can handle them. But on the other hand, I, I hesitate to, give it like a, um, you know, a, a full, like every single person should watch this just because I know that some people maybe aren't going to be able to handle some of the the gore in this, in this stuff, because it really goes there. Uh, you know, it's not just that one bread slicer kill. There, there are several where it's like, Jesus Christ, like there's some pretty brutal stuff in here. So especially for, a, you know, what feels like otherwise kind of a poppy, almost frothy, uh, you know, kind of like just more fun vibesy type of uh, story across all three of these films. So um, I was just, I was so impressed by this, Jacob. Like I, I can't stop thinking about like how well it works on a thematic level and it interrogates all this history of, so first of all, it has a, a same sex relationship at the, at the core of the story that is like not really commented upon and just uh, presented as this matter of fact thing, which I'm really glad to see that that is just becoming the norm more and more. Like I think back to uh, Mitchell's versus the machines that came out earlier this year too, where like that character's sexuality or, or uh, whatever uh, romantic preferences are just sort of uh, like mentioned and it's not even really a big deal. And I, I love that we're finally, finally, finally seeming to be getting to that place as a society. Um, so that, that is a really great aspect of this. And, and then also just like the way that it, um, it interrogates the concept of this, of, uh, of how women have been treated throughout all of the, the centuries. Like there's a witch that there's this legend of a witch that sort of is woven throughout all three of these stories. And as you learn more and more about uh, the truth behind this legend, um, you, you realize like how much of, of uh, uh, you know, how much of the, how much the narrative has, has been twisted by people who, um, were able to benefit from that narrative being twisted in their favor. So uh, there's a lot going on in these movies, a lot more than I gave it credit for initially. And um, I just wanted to to shout out this this trilogy that was exceptionally well done. So um, yeah, well, I, the only thing I'll add because it Ben summed it all up for me uh, is that this was originally conceived to be uh, theatrical release films, I think, by Fox before the Disney acquisition, and the plan was to release three of them, I think, uh, several months apart. Uh, but I think Netflix putting it out one with a week week long break from each one of them turned it into a a real event, and it's the kind of experiment that I think Netflix should be indulging in and should be trying more often. An entire trilogy mm-hmm. of movies from the same filmmaker that are so interwoven, being released you know uh, three weeks in a row, just long enough of a wait to keep people excited, but not so long that the interest wanes. Like yeah. using the energy of a great TV show uh, in that kind of hype cycle to power a film trilogy that's the kind of stuff that netflix should be doing they shouldn't be trying to mimic hollywood and like just try to like spend like throw money at the rock to make red notice they should be making like experimental interesting distribution choices like this because i remember watching watching three movies as they came out week week by week it became an event my wife and i like like literally built our friday evenings around new fear street dropping and watching yeah. it. it was really exciting yeah, 100% agree with that. I, I really hope that they learn the right lessons from this and, and hopefully more people 
you know, now that Halloween is is uh, imminent, will check out this uh, this trilogy if they haven't had the chance to see it yet. So, um, very excited about Fear Street. Very very high on that. Uh, another movie I really loved, Jacob, that I watched uh, just when, when was this earlier this morning, maybe yesterday, was uh, The Empty Man. I finally got around to seeing The Empty Man, which was sort of dumped in theaters last year. It was filmed in like 2016, 2017, and finally was just you know, another one of those movies that that was a Fox movie before the Disney acquisition that was sort of dumped because the the new regime didn't really care that much about it. Uh, Evidently got really poor test screening reviews or whatever, like, uh, you know, notes and stuff from from early test screenings. But man, I was incredibly impressed by this. Like, I, I, I don't know. Have you talked about The Empty Man, Jacob? Have you seen this? I haven't seen it. I remember when it hit theaters. It, uh, it was like two and a half hours long. I thought, man, any horror movie over 99 minutes needs to earn my time. And I was just really concerned about that. But in the months since it came out, uh, friends of the site, uh, Matt Donato and Matt Monagle, who uh, who write for Slash Film uh, and actually runs uh, Certified Forgotten, a podcast and website about uh, overlooked horror movies, have been championing this movie hardcore for in front of me constantly. So you being part of that now makes me like, man, I need to watch The Empty Man. I guess, I guess it's time. Yeah, uh, Jacob, it is like the opening of this movie. So so the first shot of the film is a mountain that looks very similar to like the Paramount logo. And I'm like, okay, David Pryor, this is your first feature film. And you're going to open a movie the very same way that Steven Spielberg opens Raiders of the Lost Ark. You, <laughs> you sir, have a lot of balls. Like, I'm, I'm going to say that. And so immediately, like the first image of the movie, I was a little... Like uh, my eyebrow was raised and I kind of like crossed my arms in front of my chest. Like, okay, you son of a bitch, you're going to do this. Let, let's see what you got here. And the opening scene, the, the prologue of this movie is so exceptionally well done. I was blown away. There is, there is something that happens. That, oh my God, I cannot believe that I missed talking about that, like seeing this movie last year. So I could argue so hard for the opening scene of this movie being on our best movie moments of 2020 list. I'm so disappointed that I can't make that case for it now because uh, it is like one of the best horror movie opening moments. Uh, There's one particular moment, you'll know it when you see it, one shot where I was just like, holy shit, I cannot believe this. This is incredible. Um, And then there's another moment, like a, a sort of a, I guess, like a mini set piece that happens in the back half of the story that is just, oh my God, so, so well done. It's like two of my favorite horror movie moments of, of the past, you know, five or six years or something. So, um, you know, as somebody who is far, far more immersed in the horror world, uh, some of this stuff may not land quite as heavily on, on you and may not work quite as well. But Jacob, I got kind of kill list vibes from this in certain All right, moments. sold, sold, so, sold, uh, sold. Kill, kill list I, is one of my top 15, Ben, so you sold I know. Me. I, it's just a little, it's just like hints, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that this movie is as good as Kill List, but there are some, there are some vibes uh, in, in it throughout. And um, James Badge Dale is the star of this movie. He's one of those guys that I think does not get enough credit for being just a really, really solid, like, uh, you know, he's, he, if he was a baseball player, he would like get triples every time up at bat or something. Maybe this is a terrible analogy because I don't really know that much about baseball, but he, he seems like, you know, just one of those guys that every time you see him, you're like, oh yeah, he he like does the damn thing. He, he delivers exactly what he's supposed to in the roles that he's supposed to. Um, and there's some, there's some great imagery in here. And the story, I thought y- you might feel like it's a, a slightly predictable Jacob, but just the execution of it is, is uh, so, so well done. So 
David Pryor is the writer, director, and editor of this. And I was like, after I saw this movie, I was like, who is this guy? What is going on? So I looked him up and he's worked a lot with David Fincher in the past, like making um, behind the scenes featurette kind of stuff for a lot of David Fincher's films. And uh, it doesn't surprise me watching this movie that that he sort of learned at the feet of of a master filmmaker like David Fincher, because this movie, it's one of those films that like within the first five or six cuts almost you feel like you're in the hands of somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. And I love that feeling uh, when I watch a movie, just like instantly, you know, you can tell that there's a competence and a voice and, uh, you know, creative uh, decisions being made. And it's not just a person going through the motions or sort of slowly feeling their way through a thing. It's like, you know, that this person had, uh, had this movie in their head for a long time before they were finally able to make it. So uh, The Empty Man is streaming on HBO Max right now. If you want to check that out, I definitely encourage it. It's really, really good. And I, I would love to know what you think about it if you eventually get the chance to, to see it. Jake. Yeah, I think I think I found my Halloween weekend movie, Ben. Awesome. Uh, what have you been watching? I just want to briefly run down three new releases that I have watched. I think I've been covered on this show already. So I'll you know, just be brisk with it. Uh, Last Night in Soho, uh, the new film from Edgar Wright. I, I'm talking about this because I saw it for a second time last night after seeing at Fantastic Fest. Uh, this movie's terrific. Uh, I think Edgar Wright is really trying to reinvent who he is as a filmmaker. Between this and Baby Driver, it's clear that he's done making movies that feel like other people. And, uh, I mean, let me rephrase that. He's done making movies that are built upon references to things he loves, mm-hmm. uh, even though he clearly had his own voice in his, you know, in Scott Pilgrim and Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and all that. He clearly is trying to, like, really devise movies that don't require you to be a movie fan already to enjoy them, if that makes sense. And I think that Baby Driver worked that way. And I think Last Night in Soho works that way. Uh, I think it's really smart. I think it's really, really stylish. There's there's so many cool things going on with how this movie is shot in terms of how they utilize mirrors and reflections that I, I think are really impressive. I, Tom, Thomas and McKenzie as the lead here is outstanding. Uh, just as you may remember from Jojo Rabbit, uh, as she is just a wonderful actress and she uh, carries this movie in a, in a pretty significant way. And I just was really taken by how it feels and by the soundtrack and by how unsettling it gets. I think that there is going to be a lot of nuance-free conversation discourse about the third act. Uh, But the the third act is very much designed to be uncomfortable and to make you really, really question some really discomforting ideas about perspective Mm -hmm. and about... Uh, and about certain decisions made by certain characters. And it feels very intentional. It's, it's very murky. And I'm worried that in, in the very binary conversation of film Twitter, it's going to turn into something that's going to give us all a headache. But mm. I think Last Night in Soho is really strong. And if you are if you love Edgar Wright, but are waiting for him to, you know, you know, just really stretch his wings and just make the kind of movie that's going to influence people instead of making movies that are built on his own influences, then I think this is the one you're looking for. So let me ask you, and I'm not sh- I'm not even sure you're going to be able to answer this because, uh, well, let me just ask you, do you think that there's, you know, one or two movies that you could recommend that people watch before they see this film that might give them a sense of uh, either, you know, some of those reference touch points that you mentioned or just the kind of vibe that that happens here without those <laughs> those movies having the same plot uh, points or, or, you know, uh, being like maybe too direct of a of a reference so much so that it might spoil what's going to happen in last night in soho um hmm. 
I would, I would say there's definitely a, a even though it's a different type of horror movie, I'd say there's definitely a Rosemary's Baby vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely you know that, that that era. Don't look now. You know, late '60s, early '70s horror thing going on. Uh, we actually I actually have an article that we can put in the show notes, Ben, where um where uh, I interviewed Edgar Wright. He he literally lists all the movies he gave his homework to his co-writer uh so we can put that in the show notes you can literally see what, what, all, all things that i can write mentioned yeah. a, cool. lot, a lot a lot of giallo a, a lot of giallo italian horror movies okay all right i uh i was gonna say i was giallo thrown around as a as a potential influence on malignant earlier this year it was very controversially because a lot of people argue that malignant is not giallo whereas i think that last night in soho is pretty firmly giallo if you want to give a read to it Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Okay, uh, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Uh, Halloween Kills kind of stinks. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very disappointed in Halloween Kills. <laughs> I have I, not seen it yet. I think Halloween, the, the previous Halloween movie, just, just Halloween, the David Gordon Green room from three, from three years ago, uh, is so smart and, and stylish. And it feels classy. It feels classy in John Carpenter's original movie. It felt classy. And this new one, it, it's about on the same level as a Halloween 5, Revenge of Michael Myers, which means that it's watchable. But it's trash. It feels really hastily thrown together. It feels like a really, a really lazy '80s slasher, which is what the Halloween series devolved into. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping that David Gordon Green's movies, his trilogy that he's making, would maintain the level of quality from the first one. And the answer is no. So I'm officially worried about Halloween. About Halloween ends, to be honest. Uh. Uh-oh. Okay. Well, that's uh, streaming on Peacock, I think. You have to pay for it. It's like extra Peacock Premium or something. Yeah. And then it's also in, in theaters, theaters right as, as well. Also, I should say, last time I saw it was in theaters today, if you've seen this the day it comes out. Cool. And then one other movie, you and HT. You've been uh, raving about it for a while. Dune! Dune, Dune. Ben, Dune. Um, it's. I have seen three movies this year that I'm comfortable calling masterpieces, and that is The Green Knight, Mitchells vs. Machines, and Dune. I think Dune, uh, not in his Fellowship of the Ring, has that many minutes flown by so fast in a world I felt ready to stay in forever. And it's not even, and I know it feels like Lord of the Rings. It doesn't, it doesn't. But I do think that what Denis Villeneuve, the filmmaker, has in common with Peter Jackson, and I talk about this elsewhere, so sorry if you listen to me in more than one podcast, is how tangible it feels. You can reach out and touch Peter Jackson's Middle Earth, and you can reach out and touch Denis Villeneuve's Arrakis. I, I strongly feel these worlds feel as lived in uh, as grounded as realistic is a is a wrong term because it, it implies that everything you know is realistic within the, within the realm of our world, mm-hmm. but realistic in the sense that oh I I, I I see the scale I understand the scale and I feel like I could exist in this world and understand the size and scope, temperature and mood of every room I'm in. I yeah, like there, there's a moment in um, I was listening to the the film cast's review of Dune, and there's a moment that Jeff Kanata pointed out where um, you know th- there's that big scene, that rescue scene in the in the middle of the movie where like the the sand uh, trawler kind of uh, spice harvester machine gets gets consumed by um, by the the sandworm. It's in the trailers and everything, so that's not a big spoiler. Uh, but there's a moment where this like rescue ship comes down and it tries to drop its like. Uh, it's harness or whatever down on this this thing to lift it up and and uh you know pull it away but one of the things one of the the ropes snaps off and you get to see as the the remaining three ropes sort of retract up into the ship that they were from and just the the mechanics of how that works and the way that um that certain mechanical pieces sort of slide into place and and you know uh I guess retract back into the that main rescue ship 
it, it speaks to what you're just talking about in terms of like every single thing is thought out here. And I think that contributes a lot to that sort of tactility that you're, that you're uh, talking about where it's like, you know, that everything, even if it's not quote unquote realistic, it's realistic in the way that everything was planned. Everything was thought through, um, you know, in a way that you, you sometimes, um, sometimes like big sci-fi stuff, it can be more just like, uh, translating concept art to the big screen, but this feels more um, granular than that. Yeah, that's really, really on point. I mean, Denis Villeneuve's talked about how he has envisioned this world in, in his head since he read the book, you know, decades ago. And you can tell. Uh, I mean, I, like I said, I, I just think back to how Peter Jackson's Middle Earth is not Tolkien's Middle Earth. It's, it's, it's very clearly a guy who's thought about that world in his head for years and years and years and added his own influence and added his own experiences with you know other forms of fantasy and other movies and other genres and ended up making the world feel unique and rich and special and i think Denis villeneuve similarly has lived with frank herbert's dune for so long that his dune is not the dune i envisioned in my head when i read the books not even mm-hmm. close but it's one that clearly has been like percolating and like marinating in his in his brain juices for so long that it <laughs> arrives in a way that makes it feel that makes it feel like a place i want to spend a lot a lot of time in. So speaking of that, um, I have not read beyond that first book. And I think Dune Messiah is the next book, right? And there, there's been some discussion we talked on the podcast yesterday, I think, about how Villeneuve has said, like, oh, maybe I could turn this into a trilogy with Dune Part 2 coming up and then adapt Dune Messiah. So uh, having read you know, more... In... idea. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you. Like, having read more in, in the, this franchise than I have... What do you make of, of that idea? Well, like, uh, basically, without getting into like what necessarily happens in Dune Messiah, what do you think about his filmmaking style being married to the events that happen in that book? Uh, Dune Messiah, not much happens in Dune Messiah. If you look at the first, the Frank Herbert Dune books, the ones I've read, I've read the first couple, Dune Messiah really feels like connective tissue between Dune and the third book, Children of Dune. If mm-hmm. Neil Villeneuve said he wanted to make Children of Dune, Absolutely, because let's, let's put it this way. Sci-Fi Channel, uh, back in the day, back when it's called Sci-Fi Channel, not Sci-Fi, made a miniseries adaptation of Dune. Uh, it was three hours long for the first book. A few years later, they made Children of Dune, the sequel. And for that miniseries, the first hour of Children of Dune is Dune Messiah, and the rest of the miniseries is all Children of Dune, giving you an idea of how consequential <laughs> Dune Messiah is. Okay. So if you want to make a trilogy where the third part is Children of Dune, then yeah, there's something there. I, I do not see how Dune Messiah is his own movie unless you radically rework it. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, well, I, I hate to end on that note, Jacob, but <laughs> I mean, do you have any, any final thoughts on Dune that you haven't been able to share elsewhere? I, I, I know there's been so much discourse about see Dune in theaters. No, don't see Dune in theaters. See how you want to feel safe. All I'll say is see Dune. Uh, watch it you know, straight through. You know, turn the volume up loud. See how you want how you want to be comfortable with it. I saw it in theaters and I had an outstanding time. Uh, but I, and I, I plan to rewatch it at home. You know, with, with subtitles because there's a lot of you know Frank Herbert talk, a lot of sci-fi words. Yeah. Um, but I genuinely think it's a really special movie, and I and I, I think that it's a, the perfect marriage of material and filmmaker. And I'm I could not be more thrilled that it turned out the way it did. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Hopefully everybody has a safe and happy Halloween out there this weekend. Uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. 
Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER and partnership with MGM Northfield Park.